Let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 10. And picking it up, I guess we left off last time we were here in verse 13. So Mark 10 verse 13, we're actually starting the Gospel of Luke on Sunday. And I'll just touch on that a little bit this evening. But let's dive in tonight into God's word. Then they brought young children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased that he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter in. And then he took up in his arms in his hands on them and blessed them. This is not in my notes and it's just coming to me now, the picture of, um, of Jesus just taking a little child and holding them up. When Judy and I were boarding our plane in Mesa, there was a couple sitting right next to us and it was just a little baby and had a set of pipes on him and he was just wailing away. And I looked at Judy and I said, I hope they don't sit by us on the plane. <laughs> There was at least four or five babies. That particular baby sat right in the seat right in front of us. <laughs> and to keep the baby's attention from crying, every once in a while the mother would hold him up, bring him down. And hold him up, he gets this great big smile because he'd see all these people. And then two seats in front of the other, there was another baby. And then they were doing it back and forth. So now you got the two babies looking at each other and uh, they're just trying to keep them under control. And... Um, uh, they did a pretty good job, actually. Um, I often wondered about little babies in planes. Like when I fly, I have to do one of these kind of things. Hold my nose and blow so my ears will pop. Because if they don't, they'll be plugged. And um, I've often wondered how dogs and babies, <laughs> how they get away with that. How does that not affect them? Well, anyway, the idea here is a childlike faith. You know, they're so innocent, and um, they're completely dependent upon their parents uh, from the time that they're born until they, they reach that age of accountability or whatever. They're dependent upon the parent. And they, whatever dad says, when you're that young, they believe it. And the Lord is saying that's the way it is with these little children that the disciples didn't want anything to do with. They were a hindrance um, maybe they were disrupting a Bible study or something, who knows. But here, addressing this, Jesus said in another place, anyone who causes one of these little ones to stumble, in other words, take away the faith that a parent has implanted in that child. And then, I, I, I particularly am thinking of college professors right now, or when a child is grown, and they've been brought up in the faith only to go to a university where the professor there begins to explain to them that um, this really isn't a young earth. It took millions and millions of years uh, for you to become who you are and so on and so forth, actually undermining that child's faith. Well, the Lord said it'd be better for that guy if um, a millstone were hanged around his neck and drowned in the deepest sea, rather than to stand before the Lord 
on judgment day saying, you're the one that undermined that childlike faith that these parents have implanted into this child. And so the Lord, pretty harsh language for anyone that would undermine a child's faith. The part here um, is actually telling, for such is the kingdom of of heaven, it gives us a little insight uh, into the nature of uh, people in the kingdom that are already home. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands on them, and he blessed them. We go from a child to a man who's grown now, he's young, but he's a a rich young ruler, verses 17 to 22. Now as he was going out on the road, one came running and he knelt down before him and asked him, he said, good teacher, what shall I do that I might inherit eternal life? Now the disciples asked the same question. What can we do to do the works of God in John 6, I think it's verse 29. And Jesus said, um, the only work that you can do is to believe on the Son. They were looking for some sort of outward activity that they could do. The Lord says, you can't do it. There is no work except believing on him who the Father has sent. So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Now, um, let me just pause here and point something out. There's only five commandments given here. The first half of the, of the ten commandments are your relationship with God. The second half of the ten commandments are your relationship to your fellow man. What the Lord is giving to this man is the second half. He needs to get the guy's attention because um, he's sort of setting him up right here and he gives him these five um, um, commandments that deal with your relationship with your fellow brother or, or man. And verse 20, he answered and he said to him, teacher, all these I've observed from my youth. Then Jesus looked at him, and I like this, he loved him. He's setting him up, but he loves this guy. And he knows that there's something hindering him from uh, following through with this. And he said, well, if that's the case, I guess there's only one thing you lack. Uh, Go your way, sell whatever you have, and, and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come and take up your cross and follow me. Now, if he really loved his fellow man, and he's rich, then he would be using his resources to help his fellow man. And he could do a lot of good with the money he had. He just gave it away and became a disciple and followed the Lord. When it talked about the first part of the commandments, it's your relationship with God, that he has to be number one, and everything that I possess, everything that you possess, would we not all agree that we are just stewards of those things that he's entrusted to us for a period of time? Even your kids, parents. You know, they're in your care. You're to be stewards over them. You're to bring them up in the ways of the Lord. And uh, whatever we have, we really don't have because every good and perfect gift comes from above, whether it's a spiritual gift 
or maybe the Lord has blessed you. What the Lord is pointing out here is what is the God of his life. And his God was money. Nothing wrong with money. Money's amoral. It can be used for good, it can be used for evil. It's the love of money that um, causes this man um, to do what he simply couldn't do it. And it says in verse 22, but he was sad at this word and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. He came in the beginning, falls on his face before the Lord, calls the Lord good. The Lord didn't correct him there because um, he is God and he is that one that is good. But here, it does make me think of um, the rich man and Lazarus. And the idea that the rich man died, found himself tormented in hell. But Lazarus, when he died, was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. Couldn't go to heaven um, because Jesus had not yet died on the cross. Jesus said to the thief on the cross that believed on him, um, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Today, you're gonna be with me in paradise. Well, we know that Jesus didn't go to heaven for three days. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So when the rich man died, he found himself tormented. But he could see across this gulf, Lazarus, and he says to Abraham, who he also recognized, he said, Father Abraham, I'm in torment in these flames. Would you send Lazarus over here and just let him bring just a little bit of water because I'm in torment in these flames. Sorry, can't do it. We can't go from here to there and you can't go from there to here. There's a gulf fix between us. And I've often thought the, the finality of this man. Do you know that he's still there tonight? And um, after all these years, 2,000 years, he's still there. Uh, he's gonna be resurrected um, after the millennium. And that man who's going to be still tormented tonight is gonna stand before the great white throne judgment. The finality that he can't do anything about his circumstances was hitting down hard. And when he realized that, he actually maybe for the first time had compassion for his other brothers and sisters. And he said, well, at least would you send Lazarus back? Because I got five brothers and I don't want them to come to this place. Would you warn them? And Abraham said, no. They have the scriptures. They have the prophets. In other words, they say they have the Bible. But how many people and how many churches have gotten away from this book, especially talking about hell? And um, the finality of that, when I think about the rich man here not being willing, you know, he, he didn't have very good foresight Neither, neither did he understand the implications and the finality when a person dies. But all of a sudden that set in and all of a sudden he's worried about his brothers. Now the interesting thing about this is there was a man named Lazarus who rose from the dead. Good place for an amen. Lazarus rose from the dead. 
And um, Abraham said to the rich, to the rich ruler who died, that uh, even if they saw a miracle, even if they saw somebody come back from the dead, that isn't necessarily going to make them a believer. Matter of fact, there were religious leaders that saw Lazarus alive after they knew for sure he was dead. And their attitude is not only do we have to kill Jesus, but we're going to have to kill Lazarus too. He's too much of a witness. He is a living witness. And so we got to get rid of him too. So what Abraham said was true. Miracles, um, the Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required. To whom little is given, little is required. Um, better not, if, if God shows you a major miracle, you have more responsibility than someone who's never seen a miracle. Another good place for an amen. We walk by faith, right? Not by sight. All right. Let's uh, go on to the next one here. Verses 20, um, no, 23 through 27 continues the thought. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to, to them, children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to uh, enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were astonished beyond measure, saying amongst themselves, well, who in the world can then be saved? But looking at them, Jesus said, with men it's impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Later on in the epistles, we're told to warn those who are rich because the fact of the matter is, there's, I think there's more temptations with people that um, are, are very wealthy. And um, um, certainly that was the case. It doesn't mean, like in the case of Lazarus and the rich man who died, that if you're rich, you go to hell. If you're poor, you go to heaven. No, nothing to do with it. God has chosen um, uh, the poor, it says, to be rich many times in faith. So this was a, an astonishment um, for the disciples. And um, Peter, in listening to all this, is, is thinking to himself, wait a second now. When we first met, I gave it all up. I left uh, the biggest business day of my entire life is when you told us to throw the net over on the other side of the boat. And we had to get other people to come and help us. It was the best business day in Peter's life. And I think Peter's flashing on this, and he says in verse 28, then Peter began to say, see, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, assuredly I say to you, there's no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wives or children or land for my sake and the gospel's who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution, that's often overlooked, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. So here, I want you to just take a chance and 
don't take a chance, just turn back to Matthew chapter 10. Um, Let's just talk about relationships right now. Family, relationships. And here, the Lord is saying that he's got to be first. That when he comes, he says, anybody that has lost family members, friends, and the list goes on and on and on. And there's friction in the family because you became one of those people. And as a result of being one of those people, it's awkward when you're around, especially at Thanksgiving or Christmas, those family gatherings, when um, um, it's uncomfortable because you're a Christian and uh, they're hoping you don't say anything. Um, and whatever you do, don't cause any problems around Thanksgiving table. And, and um, here in Matthew chapter 10, people have this misconception that because you are who you are, this is going to happen. Let's pick it up at verse Matthew 10, verse 34. He says, do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. People have such a a wrong understanding of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother. Would God really do that? Uh Uh-huh. And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's foes will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Husbands, you need to love Jesus more than you love your wife. Wives, you need to love Jesus more than you love your husbands. Sons and daughters, you need to love Jesus more than you love mom and dad. And it's the dad's job really just to set this understanding down that say, family, this is what the word of God clearly has to say about family relationships. And, um, oh, it was really awkward. when I, I was the first one saved, and here my whole family went to a traditional mainline Protestant church every Sunday. And um, um, when I didn't have to go anymore, I didn't go anymore. And then I got saved. And tried, and it got awkward, and Dad and I would argue from time to time. Um, Everybody loved him. Church every Sunday, 20 bucks to the plate. Why don't they pass it back? And I I said, Dad, try to explain, um, especially when you're a well-respected businessman and everybody knows you as a nice guy. In my case, it was Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Everybody knew my dad. Everybody loved my dad. And the mat. The, the Bible says the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit, neither can he, because he's not born again, spiritually discerned. So the person who's not born again, it goes over their head. And it's not till the spirit of God reveals himself to that person that they understand what it means to be born again. I, I think the best example of that is Nicodemus. He was rich, he was a ruler, and... Um, he secretly sought out the Lord by night so nobody would catch him talking to Jesus. 
So he had all these religious things going for him, but the Lord came right out and said, look, look, Nick, it's like this. You must be born again. And I remember talking as a family. You can't, it's not about religion, it's about knowing Jesus in a personal way. You must be born again. And Nick says, I don't get it. How does that happen? Do I go in my mother's womb and come out again? And the Lord says, no, it's sort of like the wind blowing through the trees. When the spirit blows, you can sense that it's there, but you can't see it. So is everyone who's born of the spirit. And then the day came. You guys all know the story. I've told it a hundred times. Dad got that wrong phone call. Dad um, made a call and got the wrong number. And he got a born-again Baptist minister on the other end of the phone. Dad said, sorry, I got the wrong number. And and, uh, the Baptist pastor was keen enough and quick enough to pick up. He said, oh, no, you didn't get the wrong number. And he came over to our house every night for a week. And he led my dad to Christ. I couldn't do it. The reason I couldn't do it is because fathers teach their sons. Sons don't teach their fathers. So dad was offended that, that um, me being brought up in the church would have the audacity to tell him something other than that. But uh, he prayed, and um, this is how I know dad was born again. I hadn't seen him for a couple weeks, and when I saw him, he pulled me aside, he said, son, he's 50 years old now at this time, son, I feel like I've wasted my whole life. And I knew in an instant that dad was born again. And what had troubled him and what became his life verses, 1 John five thirteen. These things are written, and this is what this pastor told my dad. These things are written, Larry, that you might know that you have eternal life. And dad now had uh, the certainty that he was saved. Well, once dad got saved, the rest of the family was like dominoes because they had to go to church where dad was going to church, and it happened to be, the, happened to be this born-again Baptist <laughs> minister's church. And um, they, especially the old-time Baptist, chapter by chapter, book by book, I remember I thought, I better check this place out. Guys, teach us through the book of Revelation. Boy, am I sidetracked or what? Okay. Anyway, um, the Lord did not come to bring peace. He came to bring a division. So maybe you're in a situation right now and it's awkward. Well, it's biblical. <laughs> Don't think that I've come to bring peace. I've come to make it awkward. And um, trust me, It's better to make people uncomfortable now. And your prayer should go something like this. Lord, I don't care what you have to put them through. I don't care what kind of mess they need to end up in. Just bring them to the end of themselves so that they fall on their knees and they come to have this relationship with you. All right, let's um, go on to verse 32 to 45. He went out and behold, they brought to him a man mute and demon possessed and when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. Whoops, I'm sorry. You guys are going to let me get away with that? <laughs> Back to Mark. Mark 10, 32. Now when they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And they followed 
And they that followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside and began to tell them the things that would happen to, to them. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered into the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him. They will spit on him and kill him. And three days he will rise again. Everybody understand that? Clear enough? The Lord clearly told them what was about to take place. And what happens? Immediately after that, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. And he said to them, Well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right hand and one on the other hand, on your left, in your glory. Now he just told them that he was going to die. They're just thinking, you're obviously the Messiah, so obviously the kingdom is here, and obviously we're the closest ones to you, so we should have uh, appointed positions in your government. And um, they were arguing amongst themselves, Yet another gospel that tells us because of this, it caused dissension between the other guys because James and John wanted to set themselves up in a place of prominence. And Jesus said to them, you guys don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm gonna be baptized with? Now they didn't have a clue what he was talking about here. I'm sure of it. And they said, yeah, we can do that, no problem. Well, the Lord says, you will indeed. Now he's talking about the fate of every one of the disciples, except for John, who died of old age. But the rest of them, except for Judas Iscariot, all died as martyrs. Jesus, referring to his baptism, he's talking about the cross, the dying. And he said, oh yeah, we can do that. But they really did not comprehend what the Lord was saying. But the fact of the matter is the Lord is confirming well, you're actually right. You are gonna drink the cup that I drink and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. Every one of the disciples um, were willing to lay down their life and knowing that they had eternal life, that this is the temporal and that um, the kingdom is eternal. But in verse 40, but to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began, here it is, greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. It will not be so among you. If you want, you desire to become great among you, you shall be a servant. What needs to be done? And let me do it. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Okay, Um, going on to verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. Jericho is at the very northern tip of the Dead Sea. It is um, 1,300 feet below sea level. And um, we used to be able to visit it. It is sort of a a 
not sort of, it is a terrorist town. It's off limits for tourists these days. We always drive around it. But anyway, um, Jericho and Damascus, they go back and forth arguing which is the oldest city in the world that's continually inhabited. And um, Jericho says it's Jericho and Damascus says Damascus. And he went out of Jericho with his disciples with a great multitude. And blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road and he was begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he cried out and said, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still, commanded him to be called, Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he's calling for you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and he came to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said to him, Well, what do you want me to do for you? (laughs) Talking about not stating the obvious. Um, But he wants this man to respond. And the blind man said, Rabboni, that I might receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. Now again, the reoccurring word in the book of Mark is the word immediately. It's the shortest of all the gospels. It's quick moving. And here we have an example when Mark chooses a miracle, we find that it is done immediately. He received his his sight and followed Jesus on the road. So here we have um, a blind man. Turn with me to Mark chapter eight, just a couple chapters back. Picking it up in verse 22, we see the healing of another blind man. And I'm having you turn here for the specific reason to say that there's no formula. There's no um, special way that the Lord does things. He's gonna heal a blind man here, but it's not gonna be immediately. In verse 22 of chapter eight, then he came to Bethsaida, which was in the northern part of the Galilee by Capernaum and Chorazin. And they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. And so he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of town, and when he spit on his eyes and he put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and said, well, I see men like trees walking. Question, don't you think the Lord could have just said, you're healed? And immediately he would have his sight. And the answer is, of course. So what's up with this this kind of blurry type stuff? And my answer to that is that the Lord's gonna uh, work in his way individually as he deems fit. And so he's doing something different than he did with blind Bartimaeus. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everyone clearly. So he had foggy vision. Why not just heal him right away? Answer, I don't know. (laughs) Except in Mark's gospel, blind Bartimaeus, just like that, and he was healed. And then he went out to his house saying, Uh, neither go into the town nor tell anyone 
in the town. Well, a blind man was, uh, saw his sight. I don't think he's going to keep his mouth shut. <laughs> I don't think he did. So we have, um, that brings us to the end of chapter 10. Let's go back and pick up chapter 11. We're now in the final days of the Lord's ministry. Um, This is the triumphal entry. And in chapter 11, verses 1 through 11, now when they came near Jerusalem to Bethage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, um, Bethage and Bethany would be on the other side of the Mount of Olives if you're facing Jerusalem. And he sent out... (coughs) two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village opposite you and as soon as you have entered you'll find a coat that's tied on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring him to me. And by the way, if anyone says anything to you, why are you doing this? Just say, well, the Lord has need of it and there's a word again, immediately he will send it here. So they went their way and found the colt tied by the door outside of the street, and they loosed it. And some of those who stood there said to them, hey, what are you doing, loosening the colt? So they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, and they let him go. So evidently, the Lord had communicated to the owner of this particular animal that this was going to happen. And um, he allows the colt to be taken. Now, what we have in um, what we call the triumphal entry is the fulfillment, let's just look at two. Um, Psalm 118 is gonna come into play here. And what we just read is a prophecy that comes from Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine. I won't, I'll just quote part of it. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Your king is coming to you lowly, riding on a donkey, the colt of a fold. Never been ridden on before. Verse nine is being fulfilled. Zechariah nine, verse nine, is being fulfilled right here. Now, um, Bible prophecy is more important today than ever. And things are happening so quickly that... um, Um, exponentially um, Bible prophecy is being fulfilled because Israel is now back into the land. The very next verse in Zechariah 9 is, and I always like to point this out, to see the importance of prophecy and being sensitive that this was fulfilled 2,000 years ago, but verse 10 in Zechariah 9 is still yet future, and it says his kingdom will be from sea to sea. And that's yet future. So if this happened and was fulfilled, that gives me great confidence. If we have to walk by faith, my faith can be increased by saying, hey, wait, this was fulfilled. So what's from stopping verse 10 from being fulfilled? Answer, absolutely nothing. Good place for an amen. The kingdom is coming. We just sang it. Bill Waters' song, one of the most beautiful worship songs. May thy kingdom come. May your will be done. And um, that should be our heart. That should be our prayer. And here we have the word of God clearly bringing this out. But the other thing that was going on 
that day is verse six. So they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded and let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their garments on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their garments on the road. Other, others cut down leafy branches from the trees, spread them on the, on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, now, this here is Psalm 118. And Psalm 118, Hosanna, or save now, blessed is he who comes in the day of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It also says in Psalm 118, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and we will be glad in it. This was the only time whenever Jesus would do a miracle, like uh, we read back in Mark 8. Um, don't tell anybody. Don't, just don't say anything. But not here. Here, the scribes and the Pharisees realized that Psalm 18 was a messianic psalm that could only be quoted for the Messiah. And they said, rebuke your followers, they're quoting Psalm 118. They think you are the Messiah. Rebuke them. Says, can't do it. This is the day. This is the day that Daniel talked about. This is the day that is a special day that would be the fulfillment of Psalm 118. When it says, this is the day, it's referring to a specific day when people would be rejoicing as Jesus would be riding a donkey down the Mount of Olives. And they would be saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. And Jesus said, I can't. It's written that if they keep quiet, then the rocks are gonna start singing. And um, it had to happen. And um, of course, the Pharisees were upset And it says, and Jesus, verse 11, went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So evidently this happened in the afternoon. He doesn't spend much time. And he goes back out with the 12 to um, the mount. Now we switch gears a little bit. And we find now the next day. So this um, uh, is the day following him going into Jerusalem. When they had come from Bethany, well, he was hungry. And seeing afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And in response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. What did he do here? He cursed the fig tree. And his disciples heard it. Now they're gonna marvel shortly that uh, the fig tree um, withered up and died so quickly. Now, Sunday morning, as we begin the Gospel of Luke, We're going to be looking at the genealogy of Mary. And at difference, you're going to find out it's going to differ from the genealogy of Matthew. When you get to Solomon, 
when you have uh, Joseph's bloodline, it goes through Solomon. David had a son that, <clears throat> excuse me, died before Solomon. And then from Solomon, you have uh, a lineage that leads up to Joseph, and we'll, I'll, we'll go to it when we come on Sunday. But Mary's is different from Joseph's, and there's a very important reason for that. When you get to David, it doesn't go through Solomon, but it goes through the next son that Bathsheba had, whose name was Nathan. So there's two different bloodlines. Well, what happened right before one of the last kings of um, Israel was Jeconiah, or Jehoiachin, or Coniah. He's got three names, but they all named the same thing. God put a blood curse on that line. And it says no king will ever sit from this lineage right here. I curse it. No more kings. But God had a way to get around it. And um, the message basically is, is going to be, we're calling it the blood curse. The question, does God ever curse anyone or anything? The answer is absolutely. And it's a, a very, very interesting, amazing study that comes out with a very, very interesting and surprise ending. And uh, we find here that Jesus actually cursed this fig tree. And um, so that's just a little teaser for Sunday morning. Uh, 15 through 19, so then they came to Jerusalem and Jesus went into the temple and he began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple, overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves, and he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. Then he taught, saying to them, it, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you've made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it and sought him that they might destroy him. For they feared him because all the people were astonished at his teaching. And when evening had come, he went out of the city. Now let's just stop and just look at this quickly. Here he cleansed the temple. John tells us that he cleansed it at the beginning of his ministry and now cleansed it at the end of his ministry. This took place on the second day and this was not the Sabbath, it was Sunday. The money changers were now in the temple. They had set up sort of a stock market uh, they were there so that when strangers came from other countries, remember for the Passover, Pentecost, and Sukkot, if you were Jewish and over 13, you had to make your pilgrimage um, to Jerusalem. So you had Jews from all over the world coming in with their own currency. Uh, they, they could exchange their coins here. The strangers couldn't use their own currency but needed the legal coin of the temple, when these money changers would have made the exchange, they of course charged the people a certain percentage. Uh, It served a good purpose in a way, but the trouble of it was that the Lord said it had become a den of thieves. In other words, it had become a religious racket, way to make money and um, take advantage of people They had to turn in their money, but it's going to cost you a little bit. And they had become wealthy 
off of this business. It was annual, what happened all the time. And um, um, it so disgusted the Lord that in another place he makes a whip and he, he just drives, uh, just drives them out of the temple. So the temple is cleansed here. Back to the fig tree in verse 20. Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up by the roots. And Peter remembered, he said to him, look, Rabbi, the fig tree which you what? Cursed has withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will come to pass, he will have whatever he says. Now I gotta stop here and um, say that this verse right here is so greatly abused and misused by the prosperity teachers that there's power in your words. You gotta be careful what you say because what you say is what you get. So don't you dare make any negative confessions because if you make a negative confession, it is going to happen. No, it's not. David said today, surely Saul's gonna kill me today. David, that is a negative confession. Did it come to pass? No. And so the, the idea that we have here and what the, um, um, and these are prosperity teachers, the Copelands, the Hagans, the Myers, um, the Olsteins, behind, behind it there's a motive that is not a godly one. And it's, it's manipulation. And um, boy, I gotta tell you guys, <laughs> Uh, the programming down in in, in, um, in in Phoenix, they have so many Christian programs that are on, but to watch them, it's just, it's so hard to watch them. And some of them are just so totally over the top and ridiculous that uh, you want, how could any thinking person ever want to become a Christian watching these guys? It's obvious to everybody that they're, on the take, and um, at best they're motivational speakers, and they're just prancing around the stage, pulling rabbits out of hats, and just just doing the craziest stuff. And then just say, if you'll plant your seed faith with us, uh, we'll make sure, as as the word says, it's going to come back to you a hundredfold. So plant your seed faith here because it'll make you a millionaire, and on and on and on, and so on. So it goes. It's nauseating. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you'll have them. But James says that's not always the case. James says you pray and it doesn't get answered because your prayer request is to consume it upon your own lusts. You're not praying, Lord, I want this if it's your will. We pray, Lord, thy will be done. Good place for an amen. But if you have you know, the prosperity teaching, taking this out of context, uh, if you don't doubt, it'll, it'll come to pass. Well, it'll come to pass. Um, I'm glad the Lord doesn't answer every prayer um, because they're not always in um, his, his will. So we leave from that into, again, the necessity now of forgiveness versus um, 
25 and 26. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. And if you do not forgive, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who um, sin against us. This is a spiritual principle. It's sort of like you reap what you sow. It's sort of like gravity. Gravity is a physical principle. Take something, you let go of it, for sure it's going to drop. Don't forgive and hold out your heart against somebody. Guess who's not sleeping that night? <laughs> you. Because you're upset and you're turning and tossing and you're doing this in your heart. You just let it go. Well, I've been ticked off at this guy for, but I don't know where he is. And he's still, you, don't have to, you don't have to see him. You can just do it in your heart and just let it go. Why let it go? Well, because just think what you've been forgiven of. And could get really sidetracked here, but there's only two verses that I want to get through 12 to. So let's just leave it at this. If I say right now that there's somebody, if you close your eyes, that this person comes to mind that you haven't forgiven. Don't leave here tonight without letting it go. Why carry it around? And the Lord said the principle is here. Forgive because you have been forgiven. Let it go. Get over it already. (laughs) And sleep well at night. All right. 27. Then they came again to Jerusalem. He was walking in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him and said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, Okay, I'll ask you one question. Then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. Okay, they form a huddle. And they reason among themselves, saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, they fear the people, for all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. So they come back to Jesus after their little huddle and says, we don't know. What they didn't know, that's the Lord heard every word that they said. (laughs) And Jesus just said, okay, if that's the case, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. My notes say, don't play mind games with the creator of the mind. You see, they stopped asking questions. So what does the Lord do? He's gonna start asking the questions in just a second here. Let's see if we can make it through this. I think we can. Let's pick it up in verse one, chapter 12. First 12 verses. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and he went into a far country. Now in vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant at him and they threw stones, wounded him in the head, sent him away shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and him they killed and many others, 
bidding some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them saying, well, surely they'll respect my son. But those vine dressers said amongst themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and they killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hold of him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees, had spoken the parable against him, so they left him and went away. All right, what do we have here? The vineyard is the nation of Israel, according to Isaiah chapter five, if you're taking notes, verses one through seven. He brought the vine out of Egypt, He planted it in the nation of Israel. He gave it to them, a God-given religion. They are the only people that ever had a God-given religion and the visible presence of God. Churches have never had that. Now he gives a parable for the religious rulers of his day. It's quite obvious what he is talking about in the parable. The servants that God sent were the prophets. The certain man who had the vineyard is God the Father. The vineyard is a nation Israel. God had chosen and protected this nation. The husbandmen were the religious rulers. And finally, of course, his son, that of course is the Lord Jesus, the beloved son of the Father. In a special way, Jesus came to the nation of Israel first. He said, I've been sent to the lost tribe of the children of Israel. And he came to them Uh, First of all, so this ties in with John chapter one, verse 11. He came unto his own and his own received him not. And all the prophecies about him, we read uh, in in Hebrews um, how the prophets were treated and especially Jeremiah. They hated hated Jeremiah in his message. Um, Let's keep going. 13 through 17. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and Herodians to catch him in his words. So they're still trying to trap him. And when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why do you guys test me? Bring me a denarius, that I may see it. You know what I find interesting about this? He has to ask for a coin. What's being implied here? That Jesus didn't even have a coin on him. Think about it. Wherever the Lord went, he probably never had any money. So they brought it, a coin and said to him, well, whose image and inscription is in this? And they said, Caesar's. Then Jesus answered and said, fine, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they all marveled at him. This was a set up 
trick question to trap him. And he just turned the whole tables on them. Now, taxes, I had a phone call from Russia yesterday uh, from uh, George Bryson, who's been planning churches in Russia for as long as I've known him. And um, he said, Dwight, did you get my email that I sent you? And I said, nope. And I said, what did it say? He says, well, what's happening over here with the Calvaries is it's in, a, in Americans' names, but what they just started doing last two months ago, they said, now you're going to have to start paying us $8 a month. And then another month went by, then it went up to $800 a month. And then another month went by, and now they're taxing them $1,500 a month. So George said what we had to do is take it out of our names and put it so that it's in the Russians' names, and then they would not have to pay the tax. They did not recognize um, the tax exemption because they're Americans in Russia, but if they're Russians, then they'll leave it alone. So they're cutting everything loose so that, um, you know, the idea there was to um, um, bankrupt them if possible. And that was, that, that was what happened yesterday. So why did Jesus ask for a coin? This is interesting. Because I don't think Jesus had one. Remember when they had to pay their taxes? I don't think Peter had money either. <laughs> he says, Pete, go fishing. And the first fish you're going to catch, uh, bring him, open his mouth, and you're going to find some money in there, and go pay your taxes. Boy, it would be great to have the Lord around tax time. <laughs> so I, don't, I really, thinking it through, don't think the disciples or Jesus traveled with any money. They had to ask for it in, in both these cases. Okay, so then some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a brother dies and leaves his wife behind, he leaves uh, no children. His brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring. The second took her, he died. He did not leave any offspring. And the third likewise, so the seven all had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. All right, here's another set-up trick question because they don't believe in the resurrection or in angels. Therefore, in the resurrection, which they don't believe in, when they rise, whose wife will they be? Gotcha now, Jesus, for all seven had the wife. And I like this, Jesus answered and said unto them, Are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the scriptures, number one, nor the power of God, number two. You know that in the church today, many of them, do not know the scriptures because they don't teach the scriptures, nor the power of walking in the spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Oh, no, does that mean I won't see my wife in heaven? Well, of course you will. You're just not going to be married and you won't be having children anymore. Uh, But concerning the dead, that they rise, have you not read the book? of Moses and the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, 
but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Then one of the scribes came and having heard them reasoning together perceived that he had answered them well. They couldn't trick him. Every time they trick him, the Lord shuts them up. And he asked, which is the first commandment? And Jesus answered, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater commandment than these. So the scribe said to them, well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there's one God and there's no other but him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the soul and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifice. And Jesus saw that he answered wisely and he said to them, you're not far away from the kingdom, you're getting it. And uh, he's not quite there yet, but he's well on the way. And after that, no one dared question him. All right, question time is over. He, he knows what we're gonna say before we say it. So they're backing away, but not the Lord. He's the one now asking the questions. Then Jesus said, okay, you guys are done asking questions. I got a couple for you. And he said, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He's quoting Psalm 110, verse one. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. Well, then how can he be his son? And the common people heard him gladly. The best seat in a synagogue and the best seat in the houses who to borrow her, what did I miss here? 30, um, 38, let's go back. Then he said to them in his teaching, beware of the scribes who desire to go around in log robes. They love greeting in the marketplace. The best seats in the synagogue and the best places of feasts. They devour widows' houses and for a pretense they make a long prayer. Uh, these will receive greater condemnation. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw the people uh, put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which uh, make a quadrains. And he called his disciples and he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all of those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had her whole livelihood. God measures in his measurements when it comes to giving. It's not how much you give, but actually is how much did it cost you to give. If you're a multimillionaire and you give $1,000, well, that's not really very much. It didn't cost you anything. But if you don't have anything, and this widow didn't, the Lord is judging on a, um, a completely different than man judges. What did it cost you? First John three seventeen it says, but who, 
Whosoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in you? I mean, if you have the means and you know somebody that needs help and you have the means to do it but you don't do it, the Lord is actually saying, how can God be dwelling in you? Because the Lord was always looking for the one who had the greatest need and that's who he invested in. Good place for an amen? amen. Okay, we'll leave it at that. So let's, um, um, let's stand and we'll close in a word of prayer. Lord, as we make our way through Mark, thank you for these chapters that we've gone through this evening. Truly your word is a word that gives us the information before it happens. As we look back on these events, Lord, we know that these are facts of history. And so we do pray, Lord, again this evening, help us uh, be mindful and uh, have the same compassion as the Good Samaritan when he was, they asked the question, well, who's my neighbor? And it was the Samaritan that had compassion on the man who was wounded. And he made sure that he was taken care of. And he said um, in Luke 10, he who showed mercy on him as the one who loved his neighbor, and Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So Lord, as we close up the Bible study tonight, and if you've placed people in our path, and it's within our power to be able to be of service or to help them, um, then we're the ones that you talk about here in loving your neighbor. So Lord, just bless us as we go out tonight. We give you the rest of the week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Seat in the houses. Who devour, what did I miss here? 30, um, 38, let's go back. Then he said to them in his teaching, beware of the scribes who desired to go around in log robes. They love greeting in the marketplace. The best seats in the synagogue and the best places of feasts. They devour widows' houses and for a pretense they make a long prayer. Uh, These will receive greater condemnation. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw the people uh, put money into the treasury and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites which uh, make quadrains. And he called his disciples and he said to them, Assuredly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all of those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. God measures in his measurements when it comes to to giving, it's not how much you give, but actually is how much did it cost you to give. If you're a multimillionaire and you give $1,000, well, that's not really very much. It didn't cost you anything. But if you don't have anything, and this widow didn't, the Lord is judging on a, um, a completely different than man judges. What did it cost you? First John 3.17, it says, but who... Whosoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in you?
I mean, if you have the means and you know somebody that needs help and you have the means to do it but you don't do it, the Lord is actually saying, how can God be dwelling in you? Because the Lord was always looking for the one who had the greatest need and that's who he invested in. Good place for an amen? Okay, we'll leave it at that. So let's, um, um, let's stand and we'll close in a word of prayer. Lord, as we make our way through Mark, thank you for these chapters that we've gone through this evening. Truly your word is a word that gives us the information before it happens. As we look back on the event, these events, Lord, we know that these are facts of history. And so we do pray, Lord, again this evening, help us uh, be mindful and um, have the same compassion as the Good Samaritan when he was, they asked the question, well, who's my neighbor? And it was a Samaritan that had compassion on the man who was wounded. And he made sure that he was taken care of. And he said um, in Luke 10, he who showed mercy on him as the one who loved his neighbor, and Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. So Lord, as we close up the Bible study tonight, And if you've placed people in our path and it's within our power to be able to be of service or to help them, um, then we're the ones that you talk about here in loving your neighbor. So Lord, just bless us as we go out tonight. We give you the rest of the week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.